Bink. I pressed it. I hit record as well. Oh my god, we both hit record at the same time. And yet again, I have my fucking microphone in my hand. Okay. Okay. One, two, three. Oh, that was way off. (laughs) That's funny because that was kind of close for me. Really? Yeah. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if this naughty to rules your lips, take your shoulders, take your hips, and let a lady confess I want to be best. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. Wow. Hi. Hi, Deanna. Hello, Hannah. <laughs> we are recording on this glorious Sunday night. Um, the sun is starting to set because the solstice was <laughs> recently. The, yes. And so the days are starting to get shorter now. Yep. But I actually, Alex and I were talking about how fucking late it is when the sun sets. Because mm-hmm. right now it's 8.15 and the sun is still up. Yeah. It's like it's setting, crazy. but the sun is up. Um, and just like last week, I am going to say that there is a possibility we'll start to get fireworks like crazy um, shortly. And yep. if that happens, you might hear some pop, pop, popping in the background. It is not gunfire. It is fireworks. Um, and most we're likely. sorry. And we're sorry. And we are not going to stop recording as they happen. We're going to keep plow through talking through them because if this we, is our if reality when they do right now. Happen, <laughs> if we were to pause every time, then it would take us hours to get the podcast recorded. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is what it is. Um, it's funny because like we get Say fireworks. Yeah, we get fireworks every every summer in Brooklyn. I mean, as long as we've been here, we've listened to fireworks going off between June and you know September. But it is which fireworks are illegal in New York. I just yeah. like to point out. Yeah, but it um, but it's so much worse this summer, and I've seen so many different, like, Twitter threads and Facebook groups and all people from all over kind of talking about the fact that it feels different. Like, it doesn't feel like people in the neighborhood setting off fireworks. It feels like a concerted effort on somebody's part to like create make confusion. it extra chaos. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's really insidious and weird. So. It feels very strange here right now, yep. these days. Um, but uh, that is the reality that we're working with. So just wanted to throw that out there just in case. <sighs> and that being said, I have a long one. Okay. So Hunkering we down. Yeah, hunker down. I think it's probably worth just diving in. Um, I would agree. And I'm also very excited to hear about this person. I'm excited to talk about this person. There are so many things I never knew, but you're going to recognize the name. Um, So before I dive in, I'm just going to tell you some of my sources are New York Times, uh, an article by Sewell Chan, uh, InsideEdition.com, an article by Sal Bono, or Bono, I guess, depending on how he pronounces it. An article from nswp.org, and some of the information in that article is taken from an article written by Leslie Feinberg, hey. who we've talked about in the past. 
Um, mm-hmm. uh, an article from Vice by Ceci Kuwabara Blanchard. And let's see, let's see, anything else? Uh, teenvogue.com, and of course, um, a little bit from Wikipedia and blackpast.org. So it is July 1st. This means that it is technically no longer Pride. However, we missed a couple of weeks during Pride, so uh, I'm just going to pretend like it doesn't matter. It's still Pride, and we're going to discuss this person, and I think it's still pretty relevant um, considering all of recent events. Uh, But today we are talking about Marsha P. Johnson. Ah, <laughs> I have been waiting for us to talk about Marsha. <laughs> Did you have Marsha on one of your lists like I had? Uh, oh, but of Gladys? course. Yeah. But of course. <laughs> but I, I haven't even begun to delve into the particulars of her life. So, yeah. I mean, other than. Yeah, things, just what we know. The basic things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Marsha in her time was known as the mayor of Christopher Street, which is where Stonewall is. Um, the, the gayest part of New York, <laughs> yep. arguably. Yep. One of her friends in a documentary called her the saint of gay life, mm. which is like so sweet. Um, and accurate. And accurate. So, uh, yeah. So Marsha B. Johnson... I'm just going to dive into this little piece from the obituary that Sewell Chan wrote for her in the New York Times. Uh, Marsha B. Johnson was an activist, a sex worker. They wrote prostitute. Um, I am going to editorialize just a little bit here and there to like change That's what up I usually try to things. do unless it's in the context of a particular quote that is makes it awkward right. to change. Yeah. <laughs> Um, So, yeah, so a sex worker, a drag performer, and for nearly three decades, a fixture of life, of gay life in Greenwich Village. She was a central figure in a gay liberation movement energized by the 1969 police raid on the Stonewall Inn. Um, She was a model for Andy Warhol. (laughs) I did know that. I didn't know that. Um, While she could, she made a home for homeless transgender youth with her friend Sylvia Rivera. She Another battled. person we should talk about. Yeah. In fact, I did um, debate talking about the two of them together. Because, yeah, they're very intrinsically linked. Yeah, there were there were things that the both of them did together that felt like, okay, I should just do them both as a unit, but it... but That would uh, be an eight-hour-long episode of this yeah, podcast? Yeah, exactly. That was what I came to realize, is that they both also were so unique, and so they did things outside of one another that were very important and specific that it just didn't make any sense. So Sylvia Rivera is someone we need to cover um, in, a, in a future episode for sure. But obviously there are things that we're going to talk about in this episode that we would end up talking about again in a Sylvia Rivera episode. But still worth So deal with it diving when we get into. there. <laughs> um, exactly. So um marcia battled severe mental illness she was usually destitute and for much of her life effectively homeless marcia b johnson could be perceived as the most marginalized of people 
black, queer, gender nonconforming, and poor, says Susan Stryker, an associate professor of gender and women's studies at the University of Arizona. You might expect a person in such a position to be fragile, brutalized, beaten down. Instead, Marsha had this joie de vivre, a capacity to find joy in a world of suffering. She channeled it into political action and did it with a kind of fierceness, grace and whimsy, with a loopy, absurdist reaction to it all. I feel like I'm going to cry in this one. I might cry in this one. I like truly I might. And I warn you now that that's that's a possibility. I think I told you earlier today that I'm in a very fragile like mental state. So uh, don't be surprised if the tears come. But come naturally. uh, You know, um, Marsha P. Johnson was just like one of those beautiful, beautiful souls that the world didn't deserve. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. She was tall and slender. She had a knack for commanding attention when she entered a room. Her outfits, I can't wait for you to be able to post some pictures of her on Instagram because she was just like, her sartorial choices were so bold and amazing and beautiful. She, her outfits sometimes included red plastic high heels, slippers and stockings, shimmering robes and dresses, costume jewelry, bright wigs, plastic flowers, and even artificial fruit in her hair, and were often assembled from scavenged or discarded materials. Mm. And she used she, her pronouns. She went by Marsha. That was who she was. She was not a drag performer who took off her costume at the end of the night and returned to her male name and male pronouns. She was a woman mm-hmm. and uh, and also was part of the drag movement at a time when like that was still, it was still very gray area. Like, mm-hmm. who who was transgender and who was just putting on a costume? Yeah. Um, so for her, so much of that, so much of, of what we think of today as drag was her wardrobe. It was mm-hmm. what she wore. It was who she was. Um, she said in an interview in 1992, I was no one, nobody from Nowheresville until I became a drag queen. Um, I'm not going to say her dead name in here. This a bunch of articles mention it, but I'm not going to use it. She Mm -hmm. was born on October or sorry. She was born on August 24th, 1945 in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Virgo. (laughs) I guess so. Yeah. Wait. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Two days, two days into Virgo. On the cusp of Leo Virgo, but yeah. 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 She was the fifth of seven children in a working class family. Um, Her father, Malcolm Michael Sr., worked on the assembly line at General Motors. Her mother was a housekeeper, and Johnson was around five when she began wearing dresses for the first time. She was, like, five years old when she was like, this is, is oh, yeah, (laughs) this feels right. This feels perfect. Um, She got bullied a lot, so she did feel a lot of pressure to stop doing that as a child, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but something I thought was really interesting is she started to attend the Mount Temen 
I hope I'm saying that right, the Mount Temen African Methodist Episcopal Church as a child. And she practiced her Christian faith throughout her life. Later, she mm. was drawn to Catholicism. She visited lots of houses of worship and other faiths. faiths. I'm going to say that again. She visited other houses of worship for other faiths frequently. So she was just really enamored of religion, I think, like organized religion and spirituality. I think she felt a huge appreciation for it. No matter who you were or what sect you were, it was um, appealing and and felt really comfortable and like home for her. Something Um, she connected to for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like all her life. Um, I didn't know that. I didn't either. And and it was it was a huge part of her life throughout her life, which I think is really interesting. She graduated in 1963 and graduated high school and she promptly moved to, to New York City with $15 in her pocket and a bag of clothing. What a what a time. <laughs> like, oh, I know. I know. Like, Can you imagine? That is gutsy as fuck by the way. Yes. First of all, mm-hmm. but like second of all, it's amazing to me that that's something anybody can even do. Right. <laughs> like what the fuck? I know. Good and I don't know her. like what $15 looks like now versus 1963, but It's still not very much. It's, it's still not very much. Certainly not enough to get you an apartment. <laughs> no, it really isn't. And I think she just needed so badly to start anew in a place where she didn't have to be bullied for wearing a dress. And it was worth the $15 in her pocket to do that. And that was in 63, you said? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, are you looking it up? No. Oh, okay. I, I was just curious about, like, the <laughs> yeah. time period since yeah. last week we were talking about New York being a haven for gender nonconforming queer folks. Yes. And all that. Yes. And but it is that interesting. that was a completely different time, obviously. Yeah, it is interesting that, like, what we were talking about last week, that haven was Harlem. And this week, we're talking about just, you know, 40 plus years later, it moved further downtown. Yeah. And was the village. I mean, that was really, like, that was really the place where you hung out if you were in that same boat. Yeah. Um, So after arriving in New York, she alternated between going by her birth name and a persona she had created in those first few months, whom she called Black Marsha, which eventually evolved into Marsha P. Johnson. Um, The surname came from a Howard Johnson's restaurant where she liked to hang out. (laughs) And she told anyone who asked her that her middle name stood for Pay It No Mind. I am obsessed with that fact. I learned about that and I was like, God damn it. I I wish I was that clever. I know. Because you don't know, the P could stand for anything, but it doesn't matter because to us now, it stands for that. It stands for pay it no mind. Yep. It probably had a very specific and special meaning for her and it doesn't matter because that is the, that's the, the legend now. Yep. Um... So, yeah, life in New York was hard. Um, She engaged in sex work to get by. She was often arrested. Um, Apparently, she stopped counting her arrests after the hundredth time. Jesus. (laughs) Uh, And this is insane. 
I only found, this is what's crazy, is I only found information about this in like one to two articles out of the 10 or so that I ended up reading. But she was shot by a John in the 70s. Whoa. Yeah. She was shot on a job and at the hospital, doctors told her that the bullet was too close to her spine to be removed because she could be permanently paralyzed in surgery. They were like, it was so close that if they tried to remove it, they it was more likely that they would paralyze her than if they left it. So they left it. What the fuck? So she lived with a bullet in her spine for the rest of her life after that. Oh my god. Yes. I know. Crazy. Um, her roommate, her later roommate, Randy Wicker, said that she never complained. You could see her have these little shivers of pain, but she never said, Oh, my back. She just went on living her life. So she was like, she had this chronic pain from this bullet in her back that was afflict you know, inflicted by someone who was paying for her services and she just lived with it oh my god and continued to smile and continued to do her thing and be her her vivacious self i and i don't know when exactly that was it was in the late 70s sometime um so obviously it was like a while after stonewall it was a long time after um her drag yeah. career but uh, but it was still early enough in her life that, like, it caused some harm for her. And I, I mean, like, the the safety level of sex workers is already abysmal, mm-hmm. even today. Yes. And it is exponentially worse for gender nonconforming or transgender sex workers yep. because a lot of people, um, men who mm-hmm. um, solicit services from them, uh, tend to have a lot of self-hatred for their sexual desires and their fetishization of trans folks, and they tend yeah. to take it out on them. Yes. Yes. 100%. Watch Pose. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> God, yeah. Yeah, Pose is... Um, well, well, we'll talk about all of that stuff yep. later. Um, yep. So... Clearly, it was not an easy time to live outside the sexual and gender mainstream. Yeah. Uh, Although New York State had downgraded sodomy from a felony to a misdemeanor in 1950. It was a fucking felony? Can you fucking believe that? That is (laughs) ridiculous. Uh Uh-huh. That is ridiculous. Goddamn ridiculous. I yep. cannot believe that shit. Yep, because, like, who the fuck does that hurt? If it's consensual, literally nobody. Insane. So, yeah, nine, 1950, they downgraded it from a felony to a misdemeanor. Um, but persecution of bullshit, gay people. But, you know. What's that? Even that's bullshit. But No, yeah. yeah. The <laughs> fact that it's a crime, period, absurd. Um, yep. But Still going, places in the world where it's a crime, which is really cool. Oh, God, yeah. But, like, going to jail for that um, and coming out with a misdemeanor versus a felony was still a victory for people who were going to yeah. jail for right. 
sex work and, you know, all of these things. And presumably when she was arrested, she was probably put in with men, right? A hundred percent. In jails. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. It's really safe. Totally. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I think um, she was always put in under her birth name. Mm-hmm. For sure. Super fun. So, yeah, so persecution of gay people and the criminalization of their activities was still common, which is something we've talked about in previous episodes where we've discussed Stonewall, particularly our episode about Stormy DeLarvery. Um, Same-sex dancing in public was prohibited. The- and also dressing with clothes that weren't considered appropriate for your gender. Yes. People was, could be charged um, with sexual devi- deviancy for that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the state liquor authority banned bars from serving gay people alcoholic beverages. Which, uh, how the fuck do you uh, yeah. enforce that? Whatever. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, but as we also know, police enforcement was often arbitrary. Like, if you could bribe them enough, or if you were the mafia. Oh, yeah. You know, it didn't fucking matter it was all about the money it was all about like how much you were willing to pay them to turn the other cheek oh yeah so you know this was the world that marcia inhabited and along with sylvia rivera and stormy delivery and like all of the other people who were at stonewall at the time but she was still a fearless fixture on christopher street you know she was still there every weekend doing her thing um a longtime bartender at stonewall named tree which i thought was fantastic said uh marcia was fun she made us laugh and that was the important thing Hmm. um michael musto who was another former fixture and a village voice columnist for a little while said she cared about the community and making a change she wasn't a party girl she was in the bars a lot, but that was just part of her being in the community. Yeah. It wasn't about going out and getting fucking drunk or getting trashed or getting high or whatever the fuck. It was about being among her people. Yeah. And, and being with her friends. That was it. Yeah. Um, so as we know, many legends have grown around the events at Stonewall. Yes. <laughs> They're often characterized as a riot. Uh, but more recently, they've been described as a rebellion or an uprising. Um, but the evidence they are suggests... All of the, it's all of those things. Yeah, it's all of those things, all at once. Um, the evidence suggests that Johnson was among the, quote, vanguard of those who resisted the police. Fuck uh, yeah. According to David Carter, the author of Stonewall, the riots that sparked the gay revolution. Though Marcia is often credited with throwing the first shot glass... She insists that she arrived after the riot had started. And Interesting. that she happily joined in. So it's funny because, <laughs> yeah, she came around like 2 a.m. And I think at that time, Stormy had... Stormy? Stormy? Mm-hmm. Stormy. Um, she's the one who I think a lot of people say is the one who actually started it. So we discussed her last year as the instigator um, mm-hmm. But Marsha gets that credit a lot, and she denounces it. You know, she she denies um, being the first person to throw anything. But 
she definitely showed up and was like, all right, I will start throwing things now that I'm here. Like, I'll start. Absolutely. I'm you know, in. Yeah. Let's go. Like, I'm in. I, this shit sucks. And I'm happy to I'm happy to fight against cops for this. And like, it's not like I haven't been arrested hundreds of times at this yeah. point. So whatever. Um, and she was 23 at the time. Uh, God, can Jesus. You it's crazy to think how young she was and how young <laughs> so many of these people were. Yeah. I mean, Sylvia Rivera was 18. Oh, my God. Can you believe that? No. Crazy. Uh, and, and so, yeah, so Stonewall helped to galvanize a more assertive and to some even a, like a militant gay rights movement. Mm-hmm. It prompted the first gay pride parades in mm-hmm. 1970. And in the same year, 1970, Johnson and Sylvia Rivera founded Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, or STAR, to mm. advocate for young transgender people um, and for a time house, clothe, and feed them from a tenement at 213 East 2nd Street. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, so this is a little bit taken from the NSWP.org article and a little bit from Leslie Feinberg. Uh, but following the Stonewall riots, Sylvia and Marsha founded Star in 1970, and it was created following a sit-in at Weinstein Hall at New York University. The sit-in was to protest school administrators canceling a dance because it was sponsored by a gay organization. Like, fuck you people. Oh my god. The sit-in brought together many gay groups, including Gay Liberation Front and Radical Lesbians. They were successful in regaining the venue for their dance. Yay! Through this event, Sylvia and Marsha saw that the needs of street youth and transgender youth were not being taken into account by early other early gay groups. Um, and Something I would argue... Something we discussed in the Combahee River Collective episode. Yes, and I would say that like they still aren't being taken seriously by other gay groups in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and they founded STAR to fill this gap. So they opened their first STAR house in a parked trailer in a Greenwich Village parking lot later that year. It was like, I think, the way I imagine it is like an RV. Yeah, but Um, also, what is a parking lot in the village? (laughs) I don't think that really exists anymore. Yeah, in the 70s, I have no idea. Mm. Um, But it functioned as a shelter and as a social space for trans sex workers and other LGBT street youth. Oh. Um, and, and that was beautiful until the day that they arrived to find the trailer being towed with as many as 20 youth still sleeping inside. What? They didn't even just like knock on. What the? No. They was, were like, was it oh, on purpose? Is... Like they knew what it was and they it were just like, be. we don't care about if there's any people inside. Oh, my God. I feel like that's the only explanation. Because, sure. you know, I don't know. If if transgender youth knew to go there, then so did other people. Right. And not everyone was as fucking cool. So um, that experience made them decide to find a more permanent home for Star House. 
Yeah. Uh, Which so I would say was probably their goal in the first place. Yes, It was just exactly. a jumping off point. Exactly. So Sylvia told Leslie Feinberg in 1988, or sorry, 1998, um, that they were looking for a more permanent home. And she said, Marsha and I decided to get a building. We were trying to get away from the mafia's control at the bars. Mm. And yeah, and I found an interesting um, couple of paragraphs on Vice from just a couple of weeks ago, actually, in this article by Ceci Kuwabara Blanchard about Star and Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. And um, they wrote that they struck a deal with Mike Umbers, a gayberhood business owner and alleged mafioso. Mm-hmm. And they rented from him a four-roomer in what Village Voice writer Arthur Bell described as a dilapidated hellhole of a building. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there, Marsha and Sylvia lived with Bambi Lamore, a black street queen befriended by Sylvia during her stint on Rikers Island. Whoa. Fun. Yep. Sylvia, I think at one point, spent 90 days on Rikers Oh, my God. Um, yep. Super fun. Um, and a couple of other black queens and people from the movement. Um, they made the place home, reviving the defunct boiler with a bit of elbow grease. They decorated the walls with posters demanding political prisoners' liberation. And I love this detail. They filled the home with puppies. <laughs> that just, like, roamed. These puppies roamed I around. Mean, to be fair, if you're doing a lot of the hard work and activism that can be utterly soul crushing, coming home to a fucking place full of puppies sounds like the best way to decompress and de-stress. I feel like that was the whole point. Yeah. So that feel... you can recover before, you know, going out the next day and continuing the hard work. Yes. Because so many of them, not just Marsha and not just Sylvia, were sex workers. Right. You know, and um, despite their youth, they were, Sylvia and Marsha were the mothers of Star House. And, right. you know, they were responsible for all of the, the young people who were under their roof and as a way to put food on the table and keep the roof over their head, they continued their sex work. Right. Because they didn't want the kids to have to do the sex work. Right. They wanted, they were used to it. You know, they didn't, they didn't need to be sheltered from it because they, I mean, you know, at one point, Marsha has a, a bullet in her back. Like she, they, they are no strangers to yeah. this life, but these kids, they don't want to, them to have to go through that if they can help it. Just like any good parent, you want to give your child everything you couldn't. Yes. Have. <laughs> yes. I mean, they were moms, like, to the core of these of these kids. Um, to stock the cupboards, they turned tricks and performed what Sylvia called, quote, fingers for Jesus, a.k.a. <laughs> shoplifting. <laughs> Which I love. That's delightful. Uh, um... <laughs> But, you know, unfortunately, Star House was soon undone by the very economic precarity from which Star Girls sought respite. And on July 15th, 1971, Umbers evicted them for failing to make rent. 
The mafioso? Yep. And he told, this is fucking great, he told the Village Voice, I think I'm doing more for the gay cause than any of your organizations, but I'll be fucked if I house that bunch for free. Okay. That, he cool. didn't, he was like, fuck those people. They're, they are not the kind of people that I want living under my roof. And if they're not going to pay, then I really don't want them there. Cool. Yeah. Super fun. <laughs> Seems so, like a nice guy. Yeah. And, you know, and, and Sylvia definitely did not give up the dream of Star House. Um, after Marsha's death sometime later, she relaunched it. Oh. Um and, and it did last for a little bit. Uh, and one of her protégés has continued activism work and work through a similar, a similarly named um, organization, mm. S-T-A-R-R, which I can't remember the acronym, what the acronym stands for now, but it's a little bit different. But, you know, she had a lasting impact on people who lived under her roof. So it, yeah. it wasn't Clearly. dead. Yeah. Um, but soon after Star was disbanded, Marsha joined the drag troupe Hot Peaches, which is still <laughs> in action today. <laughs> and they performed across Europe and America. Amazing. Which is amazing. And sh- that's where she caught the attention of Andy Warhol. Yeah, okay. Who, yeah, he took Polaroids of Johnson and, and included her in Ladies and Gentlemen, a 1975 portfolio of screen prints depicting drag queens and transgender revelers at the Gilded Grape, which was a nightclub, I think, in New York. I okay. can't remember. That would I make saw, sense. Yeah, I think that's where it was. So, um, it's going to go a little downhill from here, and so I'm just going to warn everybody of that now especially because we have been seeing a lot of um news bad news in the media lately about transgender people who are being murdered um so i'm just going to warn you right now that that's kind of what we're going to be talking about for a little bit or in a little bit um so if you want to leave now on a good note I understand, but uh, Marsha had the first in what she said, what she said was a series of breakdowns through the years in 1970, and she was in and out of psychiatric institutions after that. Mm-hmm. She said at one point, I may be crazy, but that don't make me wrong, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I love. Um, historian Martin Duberman wrote in his book Stonewall, she would wander starting off talking about one thing and end up miles away. People would say that that drugs had ruined her mind, that she was a permanent space cadet. Um, In 1980, a pivotal pivotal year for Johnson. I don't know if you can hear those fireworks, but they're going now. Um, She was invited to ride in the lead car of New York's annual gay pride parade. Mm -hmm. And she started living in the home of a close friend, gay activist Randy Wicker, in New Jersey. She cared for Wicker's lover, David Combs, before he died of AIDS in 1990. And grieving for her many lost friends, she could often be found prostrate before a statue of the Virgin Mary at the Catholic community of Saint Peter, Saints Peter and Paul in Hoboken. Hmm. She was also an AIDS activist, attending many protests by and meetings of ACT UP, the AIDS Act advocacy organization 
Um, in a June 26, 1992 interview, Johnson revealed that she had been HIV positive for two years. She said, they will call me a legend in my own time because there were so many queens gone and that I'm one of the few queens left from the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Several days after this interview, she was seen for the last time. On July 6th, 1992, her body was pulled from the Hudson River near the Chris- Christopher, Piers, uh, Christopher Street Piers. Her death was ruled a suicide almost immediately, despite a large bruise found later in an autopsy on the back of her head. And it was a determination that many of her friends and acquaintances questioned and still question, continue to question. Um, There was no suicide note, for one, and some have reported seeing her the night before running fearfully from someone. They They never can identify who but people have talked about seeing her running from a person. Um, and and there, are some, there are some documentaries, like there is a documentary I think called The, the Death and Life, I think that's what it's called, of Marsha P. Johnson, and it is primarily about this event, you know, her death, and they've talked to some people that said that she had enemies within the mafia, <laughs> enemies like all over which at first sounds funny but then you realize that like Stonewall was a mafia run bar she lived in a in a mafia uh owned building you know she did have some mafia ties that actually make that maybe not necessarily that far-fetched but um but the point is that it, it isn't quite as simple as just like oh, she's in the river and she probably just put herself there. Mm. Um, Yeah. So days before she was found in the river, Johnson was captured pondering death on home video footage provided to InsideEdition.com by Victoria Cruz, who is an LGBTQ activist who worked for the New York Anti-Violence Project and has continued to fight, I mean, still fights to this day to make sure that Johnson is not forgotten. Johnson said, I don't think they do a good investigation on a gay murder. They think, oh, that's one more gone. When you're gay, it takes forever. I always say tomorrow is not promised to me. Later in 1992, the authorities reclassified the cause from drowning uh, drowning suicide to drowning from undetermined causes. Yep. And in 2012, they agreed to take a fresh look at the case, which officially remains open to this day. Good. She's been a subject of several film projects, including an experimental short film like pseudo documentary by Sasha Wurzel, and documentaries in 2012 by Michael Cassino, and in 20, uh, 2017 by David France. Francis film, The Death and Life of Marsha B. Johnson, focused in part on the efforts of Victoria Cruz, a transgender activist who I mentioned previously. Um, so I thought it was worth mentioning those because you can find a lot of them on Netflix yeah. and um, streaming. They are available to watch in case you're interested. But um, yeah, Johnson's ability to mix flamb- flamboyant joy with determined activism is a 
central part of her legacy. As long as gay people don't have their rights all across America, she once said, there's no reason for celebration. Um, yeah. Last May, so 2019, New York announced plans to erect a monument to Sylvia and Marcia in the village. Uh, and so we bring back Shirlene McRae, who is our New York's first, first lady. lady and also was a member of the Combahee River Collective in the 70s. Um, she said in an interview at that time in 2019 that she thought it was important for a monument like this to have a name and a face. In teaching people about the gay rights movement, she said, it is vital to include stories of activists like Mrs. Johnson, like Ms. Johnson, who was black, and Ms. Rivera, who was Latina. The LGBTQ movement was portrayed very much as a white, gay, male movement, Ms. McRae said. The monument counters that trend of whitewashing the history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought that was kind of a nice point to end on because... I think that um, we still have a long way to go, obviously, but... 100%. Um, but especially, I feel like... Especially when it comes to gender non-conforming transgender people who are killed at an incredibly high rate, and it is very on the nose that <laughs> people still don't care. It's like when... When, like... A, a cisgendered black man is murdered you look for every single reason as to why he deserved to be killed yeah but already if you are a trans person of color especially people will already see you as lesser than yeah and and think that you presumably did something to provoke your own death automatically just by existing in your yes. skin yeah. Shit, I knew it was gonna cry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I but it, but it's true, <sighs> and I ha- I mean, it it scares me when you think about the reality, and when I think about my transgendered friends and my gender nonconforming friends, and especially my trans friends of color, how fucking brave they are just to go out their fucking door every day. Yeah. Even in a place like New York. Yes. Um, I've actually been thinking about that a lot lately. (laughs) Um, I am not surprised. I mean, just this past weekend, we have had huge protests where it's not just Black Lives Matter that is the the rallying cry. It's Black Trans Lives Matter Mm -hmm. that has been the rallying cry. And that is because we, we talk so much about the Black men who are casualties of police brutality and we don't talk nearly as much about the black and not to lives. diminish no. the importance of that work too <sighs> right but it's you know but apples it's to, and oranges <laughs> coming exactly down. they are two different things in a big way because one one is the intersection of multiple oppressions versus versus a very specific one mm-hmm. um and yeah, I, and I'm I'm so sorry to end the story like Marsha's story that way, because so many accounts of her are um, so joyful, and I I appreciate that so much. You know, I I think that the idea of her as this like 
this lively woman with fruit in her hair is just, it's beautiful in a way that is hard to even describe. And that is why it was important to me to also discuss the way she died because um, I think that she's mythologized in a way that lets people off the hook. Yeah. We don't, we don't have to think about the fact that we failed her. Yeah. So, so hard. We don't have to think about the fact that we prohibited her and Sylvia from joining in gay pride for years after they helped launch that movement. We don't have to think about the ways that we really, really didn't measure up to the legacy that they left. Yeah. When we don't talk about how we failed them. Yeah. And so, so for that reason, it was important to me to talk about the ways that we failed her. Yeah. Yeah. And that we continue to fail her because 2012 is a long time for a potential murder case to be open. Yeah. For someone who pioneered gay rights, for someone who made it possible in her way for us to have gay marriage, you know, Mm -hmm. for whom the the Supreme Court victory just a couple of weeks ago was really for people that she sheltered and and protected and loved um, unconditionally and loved, you know we failed Marsha in a big way and um and I think that it's just really really important that we understand that and that we work to do better and that we start I agree. you know we start doing that I mean Black trans lives matter. Mm-hmm. And they've always mattered. And they've always been um, overlooked yeah. in, a, in a big, big way. So, yeah. Um, that is my soapbox. <laughs> I, can, I can step off of it now. But, like, you know... That that might be the way that she went, but she was like she was. She was the saint of gay life. She was the mayor of Christopher Street. Yeah, she was loved by all, and that is really what we need to remember, and and really how we need to imagine her when we do imagine her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> l- last thing. I'm going to link to, in our show notes, I'm going to link to this um, really great list that Bustle.com put together of black-led queer and trans organizations that we can donate to today. Great. And there are 32 organizations on this list. Um, So look at that. I really encourage you to do that because... Black trans people are disproportionately um, subjects subject to violence. They are disproportionately homeless. Mm-hmm. They are disproportionately abused. Um, and really, that's they could they could really just use everybody's support. So, yeah, 
I might also, if it's okay with you, send you a link to um, a, a piece that my friend Giselle Bird wrote uh, oh. about about her experience in the entertainment industry um, as a black trans woman. Um, Please, yes. And it, it, she wrote it when, you know, all the protests began and and it's just it's a beautiful piece of writing and um it was really eye-opening because uh she and i both went to scad and um so you know we had a connection already but she and i would converse uh for work and she's just a, a a breath of fresh air and um an amazing person so i think it's you know a good piece to link to, I think. Yeah, please do send that over and I will put that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that sounds awesome. Yeah. And, uh, and I it's was not all bright and cheery as you would imagine, but it's, yeah. I, I, it's really valuable for me to have read her experience. Um, and she does have a great job where she's very supported. Um, Thank God. And her identity. And um, she, yeah, she talks yeah. about that too. So, um yeah uh, speaking of just like trans representation in media i think i told you this maybe i told you this that i that i watched disclosure the netflix documentary this weekend yeah you did um and i will say like if you are transgender or you know gender non-conforming or non-binary you probably don't need to watch this documentary because there is a lot of triggering um there's a lot there are a lot of triggering visuals and things i mean it is all about how transgender people have been portrayed for 100 years plus um but if you are somebody who doesn't understand maybe like (laughs) why why black trans lives matter or like why that's the rallying cry or like why jk rowling's comments are um not great or even just like if you just want to understand the statement like if you just want to understand like what trans lives mean or like what being transgender is it's a it's a great documentary to watch it is for you like it is for it is not for trans people like trans people don't need it (laughs) they've lived it but my friend marquise is in it yes uh yes and he's awesome um, Leslie Feinberg is also not necessarily in it, um, but there are clips with her in it, and um, it's really, really good. So that is also worth worth a look. Yay! Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? Let us know by becoming a patron on, on our, our Patreon. Patreon. <laughs> oh no! Patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh, come along with doing our podcast. And the more patrons we get, hopefully, the more content we can start creating exclusively oh, yeah. for patrons. Yes. So, if you are interested in something like that, please become a patron so that we can start creating that content for you. Also, when you become a patron, you will get a shout out on our podcast and we will thank you personally on air. How exciting is that? Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You can find us at patreon.com slash podcast. Okay. 
Okay, wow. <laughs> Let me give you some on this day. It doesn't get much lighter from here. I'm just going to warn you. Uh, Hannah. I'm, I'm so sorry. Just a couple of little things first. <laughs> 1863, the Dutch West Indies abolishes slavery on this day. Uh, it ended a period of around 200 years of slavery in these colonies. Okay. 1867, the Dominion of Canada is formed. <laughs> Comprising the provinces of New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Ontario, and Quebec. With John A. Macdonald serving as the first Canadian Prime Minister. And <laughs> I just near and dear to your heart. <laughs> I appreciate that because that means that today is Canada Day. So for any Canadian listeners, happy Canada Day. I hope you are setting fireworks off on the beach. Um, because I miss doing that. So... These fireworks that I'm listening to right now are for you. Um, 1873, Henry Ossian Flipper of Georgia is the first black man to enter and graduate West Point Military Academy. That is such an amazing name. So good, right? Henry Ossian Flipper. So good. West Point's not far from here. No, it is not. It is upstate. Um... And he was not necessarily the first black man to enter the academy, but he's the one that they talk about because he's the first one to graduate. Ah. Um, okay. So this one's the heavy one. 1917. I didn't know anything about this. Today starts the East St. Louis race riots. Oh. Do you know anything about this? Nope. All right. I took a little bit from Teen Vogue. Um, and I'll link to the full article in case anyone wants to he- read, you know, the entirety of it. Um, it's mm-hmm. really good. Teen Vogue has great journalism, by the way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. They're and the so alt-right good. hate them. So oh. it's great. Yeah. So, yeah. So the East St. Louis race riots of 1917 saw the indiscriminate massacre of men, women, and children in a one-sided spate of brutal burnings of people in buildings, lynchings, shootings, and beatings that left an official death toll of 39 black and nine white Americans dead. Um, Though historians estimate that more than 100 black people were actually killed, just not officially recorded. How many? A hundred, more than a hundred. Um, 39 black people had deaths officially recorded, but more than 100 more likely were were killed. Wow. The conflict started on July 1st, 1917, when two white male plain-clothed officers were shot dead by armed black residents in East St. Louis, Illinois, the sister city to St. Louis, Missouri, um, which falls just over the state line. The officers were driving in a Ford Model T, which many black residents mistakenly believed carried, quote, white drive-by shooters who had been terrorizing black people in the neighborhood. Mm. Black residents and our, uh, black residents armed themselves to defend their community from members being killed, but their mm-hmm. intentions did not protect them as whites in the town retaliated for the deaths of the two officers who were mistakenly killed in a racist massacre that took over the following two days. On July 3rd, Carlos F. Hurd, H-U-R-D, a staff reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, published the earliest and gruesome reports out of the area. 
Um, and they are gruesome, so I just want to warn anybody listening. He reported that many white Americans, often dressed in suits and house clothes, roamed the streets looking for black residents to terrorize. He was even shocked by the calmness of their demeanor as they brutally killed black people. These weren't drunken, dispassionate rabble-rousers. They were working people who were killing black people for fun, and they were doing so in the most sickening of ways. Heard noted that the term, quote, mob, didn't quite make sense with the scene at hand. Uh, a mob, he wrote, is passionate. A mob follows one man or a few men blindly. A mob sometimes takes chances. The East St. Louis affair, as I saw it, was a manhunt conducted on a sporting basis. I saw one of these men, covered with blood and half-conscious, raise himself on his elbow and look feebly about when a young man, I presume white, um, standing directly above him, lifted a flat stone in both hands and hurled it upon his neck. Hmm. Philosopher W.E.B. Dubois called the riots the massacre of East St. Louis in the September 1917 edition of the official publication of the National Association of the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, uh, the crisis. He detailed accounts of babies that were snatched from their mother's arms and thrown into the flames and shared that some black Americans were trapped in their homes and businesses as the buildings were set on fire. Other accounts tell of execution-style shootings. Like most large-scale racial tensions in the U.S., the East St. Louis race riots were rooted in systemic inequality rather than the interpersonal animus credited with their spark. The area of East St. Louis had become a mecca for black Americans both fleeing the Jim Crow South and seeking opportunities for economic prosperity in the booming World War I trade and production industries. By the end of the July massacre, nearly $400,000 worth of damages had been done, which would be about $7 million today. Jesus. But the true toll of the East St. Louis race riots had nothing to do with money. The deeper, more insidious fact underlying this event is that even though these horrors were vile and inhumane, this event and the lives lost have been mostly forgotten. Yeah. Which is why I thought I probably should say something more about it than just the one line that is given on most websites. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of uh, Ragtime. And Ragtime is about... Oh, Ragtime is a musical about uh, America at the turn of the century. Um, they talk about... Um, the confluence of uh, affluent white people and black people and immigrants. So you like tells perspectives from different uh, points of view, tells perspectives from different. Anyway, um, but anyway, <laughs> there's, there, there's like fine. a part where uh, it has to do with a car, but it's like a black man owning a car that white people think that he shouldn't. Um, and there's like a whole spout yeah. of violence that um, occurs after. I won't spoil the whole thing. Anyway, it's based on a book too, so if yeah. you want to read the book, you're not if musicals aren't your thing. Yeah, it um, is a beautiful musical, though. I mean, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's really it's really gorgeous, and it makes me cry. Um, it makes me cry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, as it probably should. <laughs> yeah, as it probably should. So I did. I did put a couple more down, just you know, just to 
try and lift us out of that? You know, lift us out of that just a little bit. Um, Well, thank you for talking about it. This one I thought was interesting. Um, Another kind of bummer, but I won't end with it. July 1st, (laughs) 2000, the government, quote, Higher Education Act, which was passed in 1998, is finally enacted. And it denies financial aid to students with drug drug convictions. Oh, my God. So ever since the year 2000. What the fuck is the point of that? Denying black students financial aid? But, like, what is the... The, the way they tried to spin it as a positive thing. What, that if you do drugs, you don't deserve to go to school? Oh, I'm sure. I, like, you, I, they, I don't they, know. They try to, to sell it as, like, this is what's going to prevent people from doing drugs and, and getting drug convictions. Which, first of all, sorry, yeah. but yeah, you're right. It is about uh, minority groups because <laughs> mm-hmm. they're more heavily policed because, you know, plenty of white teenagers do drugs and just get a warning or a slap on the wrist, even if they do get caught by police. Yeah. Ah, yeah, okay. because as I learned recently, I learned this week, I didn't know this, but apparently weed was made illegal um, just to create a reason to arrest black people. Yeah. I, and I didn't know that. I didn't know that weed was made illegal literally just to give a reason to put black people in prison. But so, you know. It, it it has a long history, the drug conviction thing, but which is why it's so complicated that the majority of of people in states where marijuana is fully legalized, um, people profiting off of that are uh, majority white. So, <laughs> yay, yay, yay. Anyway, yeah. oop, I have 10% battery left on my phone. Oh, okay. I'll make this quick. Um, I went to July 2nd because that was where the cool stuff was. Uh, <laughs> July oh. 2nd, 1937. Well, cool-ish, but you know. Uh, Amelia Earhart's plane is lost in the Pacific Ocean near Howland Island. Mystery. Big, crazy aviation Interesting. mystery. Interesting. Uh, July 2nd, 1964, President Lyndon Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act. Title IX prohibits sex discrimination in employment. Sweet. And that's where I'm going to end. Tell me what you're excited about. Well, um, I think I'll just piggyback off of of your on this day because uh, yesterday I um, sat down to start watching the TV series Watchmen with my neighbors. I've seen it already, but I'm introducing it to them. Um... And I think it's it's an appropriate time for people who maybe haven't watched it to fucking watch. It's on HBO. Um, and it's it's really on the nose for things going on right now. It's it's an interesting sort of um, story being told. And um, it's a brilliantly written show. And the cinematography is great. And the score is amazing. The acting is fantastic. And on top of all that, it's a lot about race shit and it's about cops and it's about so many things. And it's very fantastical. You should. And it opens with the Tulsa massacre. Ah. And I really, really am thankful for that because I knew about it. I didn't know that much about it, but I knew about it. And a lot of people thought it was a fictionalized thing created for the show. Really? There, but but so many people watched this show and then Googled it oh. and found out it was real. So <gasps> I'm really glad that they started this show with that. 
the power of media. But it's a very intense uh, opening sequence, I will say. Okay. Very, very violent and upsetting. Okay. Good to know. But the show is fucking great. And Regina King is <laughs> so a good. legend. Yes. Yes. And Yahya Abdul-Mateen is in it. He was in Aquaman for people who watch DC movies. <laughs> um, but he was in The Get Down and was one of my favorite actors in it. He kind of played a villain in it, but he's he's fucking great. Um, so Awesome. Watch it. All right. Fuck yeah. That's on my <laughs> list. Yay. Yay. And tell me when you do. I'd be curious to get your opinions as you watch. Yeah, I will. It probably won't be tonight because um, I'm already... Uh, a little, Upset and you know, stirred. emotionally, <laughs> yeah, yeah, stirred up. Um, but I want to hopefully yeah. this week because it's Sweet. on our on our HBO. Now that we have HBO Max, ooh, yep, fun. Me too. Yeah. So well, thanks, yeah. Hannah. That was an excellent episode. Uh, uh, thank you for bearing with me. I I know it was heavy at the end there, but thanks um, for making me cry. And... I'm so sorry. <laughs> Uh, it felt important to do so um, because I've been crying all day about it. So thank you for crying with me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Ah. yeah man. And, on, and on that note, find us on social media. Um, we're on Instagram and Facebook uh, at GWBB podcast, uh, Twitter as well. Uh, you can email us at GWBB podcast at gmail.com. Become a patron, patreon.com slash GWBB podcast. Or if that's not your bag, you can give us a one-time donation, ko-fi.com slash podcast. And uh, we love you all who support us and who listen. And um, thank you so much for being a part of this with us. <laughs> Truly, thank you. You guys rock. You're the best. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very cool. Peace out, witches. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif. Me. You. And you. (laughs) Hannah Ferguson. And we're produced by Benjamin Garst. Um, You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Google Play. Google Play. Pretty much anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it. If you want to help keep us running, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. <laughs> Become a patron and help us, you know, pay for our hosting. Yeah, Patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content. And it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast. And it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out. If you like it, you can be a part of it. Also, to help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe. All of, the, all of those things are extremely helpful for us. They help other listeners find us. Yeah. Word of mouth, also good. Yeah. (laughs) Our website is gwbbpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes there, as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is powered by Moonbounce. Moonbounce.